I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Yancy Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter, a leading crowdfunding site. The company enables the public to fund creative projects related to film, food, design, and music. So if you're a musician who wants to create an independent album, you can go to Kickstarter, describe your project, how much money you need, and hope that visitors to the site will contribute. Yancy co-founded the company in 2009 with Perry Chen and Charles Adler. Welcome. Thank you. When you were growing up, did you have a sense that you would be an entrepreneur? Uh, Never. My entire goal growing up was to be a writer. Um, I loved to read. I was always good at school, you know, but but my dream was to be a writer. And, you know, there were various books that made me want to do that. All the President's Men was a book I reread all the time. And I very desperately wanted that kind of experience. And uh, and that's what I pursued through college. And, um, you know, I took it very seriously and I got my first freelance writing jobs during college. And after school, I became a writer full time. And that was sort of living the dream, moving here to New York and doing that. And then I think there's a certain point where I realized that that world is a little small for me, um, that maybe I was better at more things beyond just writing and thinking about language and how to write about music or whatever the topic was. And so I, I sort of realized I started working in companies and organizations that I thrived in those situations, that I could be decisive, I knew how to do various things. But, you know, this whole thing with Kickstarter just sort of fell into it. What do your parents do? Are they in the literary field? Uh, not at all. I mean, my father uh, sells furniture. My mother uh, was a secretary. She recently went back to school and, and, and now is an accountant. My stepfather is an auto mechanic, and my stepmother sells real estate. So it's a, it's a working-class family. I grew up um, certainly not having money uh, in a very rural area in southwest Virginia outside of Blacksburg, Virginia, where Virginia Tech is. And it's a great place to grow up. Um, But nothing about it would lead me to where I've gotten to be now. I think that, you know, growing up in a small town like that, you're unaware of how big the rest of the world is. And, you know, fortunately through books and all these other ways, I got this greater sense of, of what possibility there was. You grew up on a farm. Who was the farmer? Uh, well, we rented a house. There's this old house built in 1863, I think it was. It's a white house with a red tin roof, and you could see the house from about five miles away because the roof would just pop out of the, the trees. It was, was kind of nice. Uh, but it was this falling down house, and, uh, and we just rented it. Our family did for $100 a month, and farmers worked the land. So I would work for them during the summers, um, but they would raise cattle there, and they were you know, cattle for beef, so they would take them away, and you'd hear the rest of the cows cry, you know, that mm-hmm. night. And there was, you know, there was sort of a rhythm to it. Um, it's a nice thing to talk about now being in New York because it makes me exotic, but I hated it at the time. <laughs> I mean, I I just wanted to read books and, you know, think about things like that. I, I did not thrive on, on country living. Um, but I look back at it now with, with some level of fondness. So the farming life wasn't for you and, and you, you wanted to be a writer. Did your parents ever push back on that? Not at all. I was never, never pressure whatsoever. Um, I think if any, my father wanted me to be a rock star, so it might have been the opposite, the opposite direction. But. Speaking of rock star, you have an interest in music. You were a music journalist or a music critic prior to starting Kickstarter. What role did music play in your life? Uh, I was huge. I mean, my my father wanted to be a musician his entire life. He was a folk artist and he had bands. I played very briefly in a band with him uh, when I was in high school, a band called Rock Bottom, um, which is kind of appropriately named. And uh, <gasps> But music was always, you know, it was my identity, you know, and, and I was a weird kid in high school and, you know, I, I, was, I was one of those kids. But music is where I saw 
this other world that I could possibly be a part of. And as someone who is, you know, intelligent and is curious, you know, that quest for for learning more about music is a very exciting thing, especially pre-internet. Mm-hmm. You know, I would I would buy magazines just to look for names of bands I'd never heard of before, so I could try to find out what they sounded like. So that. Mm-hmm. That level of discovery was a huge part of, of how I grew as a person. Um, and I played music myself not very well um, and eventually realized I couldn't make music that I myself liked. And that was a hard thing to, to recognize. Uh, and so then I began, you know, to, to write and, you know, use my, my ability to, to, to be pretty strong with words and to talk about records that I liked. But at a certain point, that sort of gets, gets to be not enough. It's not, you know, emotionally fulfilling. Since there was some type of frustration with your career prior mm-hmm. to starting Kickstarter, to what extent did you start the company because of that, you know, you're having itchy feet to do something else versus really having a, a visceral interest, a holistic interest in in the company? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely wholly a, a, you know, a strong, genuine interest in what we do. I mean, it really is it. But, you know... It's not hard to look at the music industry and think this is not going to be here for very long. And, you know, I look at my very good friends who are still in that world and not many of them are employed anymore. And so, you know, you're watching the the sand leave the hourglass and, you know, you're starting to think, I, I need to get out of here. Um, so certainly that, that was in the air. But, you know, the Kickstarter is is without question the greatest thing I've ever had the privilege to do with my life. And I don't know if I'll ever have the opportunity to do something so good again. Your co-founder, Perry Chen, had the original idea for Kickstarter. You met him randomly at a restaurant in Brooklyn. What was that first encounter like? Perry first had the idea in 2002. Uh, he had He's from New York originally, and he moved back to New Orleans, where he also went to college. And he went there, and he was trying to put on a, a concert. And he didn't have the money to do it. It was going to cost you know a lot of money up front to make it happen. And out of that, you know, he wished that he there was some way he could know beforehand how many people were interested. If a certain number were interested, the show could happen because there were enough people. If there weren't, then the show wouldn't happen. And just this very simple trigger. And that was really the origin of Kickstarter right there. And so then in 2005, fall of 2005, um, there's a restaurant in Williamsburg, Brooklyn called Diner, and it's a, it's a nice restaurant. And, uh, and I used to go there a lot, and Perry was a waiter there. And, um, and we got to be friends, and, you know, eventually one day he mentioned this idea he had. And, you know, he mentioned it to me because at the time um, my day job was working on the web in an editorial way, but I worked on the Internet. And so that you know, that meant I know more about the web than he did. And so I could help him with this idea. Um, so he shared this concept to me of this of this trigger that people decide for themselves what gets funded and what happens. Um, and so, you know, I could see the merit of it, um, although I was a little nervous about it at first, too, because I thought, well, this is this is American Idol. This isn't how you create great art. But as we talked it through more, just thinking of all those niches and enclaves in the world that, that just get ignored, but there is a support system there and a fan base there and all that who could decide for themselves. And then um, about a year later, we met Charles, who I mentioned before, our third founder. And Charles was more technical than either of us. He was a designer, um, but we still didn't have that core tech team. And that took a while to put together. So from the moment of, of really working on this in a very concentrated way to the site's launch, there's four years in between there. 
What did you do to support yourself in those four years? Um, well, I still had my day job. Uh, I was I was working at a music service called eMusic at the time. So I was doing that during the day and at night I was, I was working on this. Um, Perry quit waiting. I mean, he was full-time trying to make Kickstarter happen. And he had some savings and he lives, lives light anyway. And same with Charles. You know, there's no way this doesn't happen if the two of them aren't working at this full-time and refusing to let this fail. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were numerous opportunities for us to quit. And there are times where, uh, you know, empirically, maybe we should have, but there was a, a persistence and a stubbornness that saw it through. What were some turning points in those early days before the site launched that you thought, you know what, actually, we're going to stick with this. And by the way, it was inexpensive for you because you were you were doing your other job anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had more of a safety net. And I was... I mean, that was a source of conflict for sure. You know, mm-hmm. the one guy who doesn't quit his job, but I just, you know, I, I had I had no money and no no way to, to hack it. And, I, you know, I just wasn't ready for that jump. Um, and so there are a number of milestones, good and bad. I mean, the, the biggest mistake that we made um, and a mistake that I think a lot of people probably now are making is that we, uh, we tried to outsource the development of the site. So we ourselves did not know how to code. So we went to outside firms and hired them to, to code the site. And, you know, we were repeatedly told by, by the, the few people we met in the tech world that this is a terrible idea. This never works. Like, this never works out. And our reaction to that was, whatever, old man. You know, what do you know? <laughs> it's, it's different for us. You don't know how it is these days. And, uh, and we really believed that. And then we realized after um, going down that path uh, two or three different times uh, and, and it sig- not working out in really significant ways that we realized that this was true. So a big, a big turning point there was we met um, a woman named Sunny Bates. And Sunny is a Uber connector. She's the fastest talker you will ever meet. She lives here in the city. And she's just a lovely lovely woman. Sunny shares a dog walker with a friend of Perry's from college. And so we met Sunny through through that. And we became just the, you know, the two downtown boys that she got to help out. And she really liked us immediately. And we just were blown away by her. And she's just a force. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know anybody. And so we told her our idea. And we were these, you know, two earnest guys with a piece of paper. And she was like, I'll, I'll take you around. I'll introduce you. So we were able to talk to people that we definitely would not have otherwise. What are who are some of the people whom whom you got to talk to and who who you whom you engaged as a result of uh, your connection with Sunny? Yeah, like a real a really important one would be Katerina Fake, who is the founder of Flickr and founder of Hunch. Through Katerina, we were introduced to Andy Bayo, and Andy was our an early advisor of ours and our CTO for a little while. Andy founded a site called Upcoming.org uh, in the early 2000s that was sold to Yahoo. He runs a blog um, called Waxy.org, which is one of the best blogs on the web. He's basically the Internet's resident nice guy. And so Andy brought us a lot of credibility. Um, when we launched and when people first covered us, uh, I think TechCrunch wrote about us the day we launched. I think they said Andy Bayo's new startup. You know, he mm-hmm. wasn't a founder. He was involved. But, you know, we would take it. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's great to be associated with him. Mm-hmm. And he also helped us find technical talent. So, mm-hmm. you know, a hard task when you're not technical yourself is you meet someone and you have no idea of how to tell how good they are. So that was a big help. And basically just from the moment we met Sonny, um, there was momentum. Right. And you also have gotten support from people like Jack Dorsey, one of the Twitter founders. Is it financial support, among other things? Yeah. Um, yeah. He's, uh, he's an angel investor. We have a few uh, really interesting angel investors, him, Joshua Schechter, who founded Delicious, and, uh, and Katerina, who I mentioned, and, and Fred Wilson and Union Square Ventures are our primary backers. 
We talk about, you know, crowdsourcing. Did you in any way feel like, oh, as I'm starting a company uh, related to crowdsourcing, that's what I'm doing myself is getting a crowd of people kind of funding my, my business? Well, it's funny. When we were when we would go around with the idea and we were just, you know, a couple people with a piece of paper, um, people inevitably would suggest, why don't you kickstart Kickstarter, you know, get people to put the money in and create the company that way. Um, and SEC regulations prevent any exchange of equity on a, on a case like that. But we did uh, take that tact in the sense that we thought, let's get as many people who as possible who we think will believe in the idea, who can be advocates for us, um, and let's get them to put in, you know, just a small amount of money. So that's definitely been a conscious approach that, that we've taken because, you know, one of the one of the this the big ideas of Kickstarter is that a, a community could be a great sense of, of support and encouragement, and they can spread your word far, you know, spread word about your project far and wide. And and we definitely thought very hard about that. I'm Jessica Harris, and you're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Yancy Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter. We'll hear more from Yancy coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Yancy Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter, a leading crowdfunding site. The company enables the public to fund creative projects related to film, food, design, and music. So if you're a musician who wants to create an independent album, you can go to Kickstarter, describe your project, how much money you need, and hope that visitors to the site will contribute. Yancey co-founded the company in 2009 with Perry Chen and Charles Adler. There's a book by James Sirwicky called The Wisdom of Crowds, where the more independent people you have in a population, the more accurate an answer or an outcome will be. Uh, to what extent was that kind of ringing in your ear when you were getting this off the ground, if at all? Uh, we read it. I mean, that came out at the time that we were working on this, and it was certainly intriguing. Um, and... You know, it's nice to get that that pop psychology reinforcement for what it is you're thinking about. But that's um, all that it was. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, we were driven by we were driven by a few different things. I mean, a sort of a core motivation was this was this acknowledgement of the fact that for an idea to have any value in culture, um, it had to generate money. That ideas that did not, in the end, generate revenue for someone else were considered valueless. You could not get a loan for those ideas. You could not get a venture capitalist to invest. You could not get a film studio to be, you know, to finance that. A record label would be scared of it. Everyone's just looking for a return on investment because they're businesses. But yet, you know, 99% of ideas are just ideas. It's a thing in your head that you want to have exist in the real world. If it makes you money great. No one's going to you know, cry about that. But in the end, you just want the thing to happen. You want that personal satisfaction. So we thought, you know, we could construct a place that functions differently, where ideas are judged based on the passion of the person behind it, the quality of their craft, the connection with their audience, and, and what the audience itself thinks. You know, the means of doing that was almost secondary to that idea. So... You know, we get called a crowdfunding site accurately. You know, that's sort of the term the web has come up with to describe these kinds of things. But that's not a word that's anywhere on our website. It's not a word that's ever spoken about in our office. It's not a word that we ever talked about leading up to this. I mean, I could care less about crowdfunding. It's a mechanism. You know, really, it's this, it's this bigger idea that matters. This crowdfunding thing is just a means to get there. Right. You're, you are enabling creators to create regardless of what a market might say. Absolutely. How does Kickstarter work? 
So um, Kickstarter funding is all or nothing. So I create a project. I say how much money I need to complete it, and I give myself an amount of time to reach it. We suggest 30 days. That's the typical thing that people do. So we need $5,000 in 30 days. Now, if that person is able to raise that $5,000 or more by the time of that deadline, at that point, everyone is charged, and that person gets their money, and they go and they do their thing. If they come up short of their goal, then no one is charged at all, and everyone just walks away like nothing happened. Now, people choose to back projects because they get something in exchange. So it's not a tip jar. It's not a donation platform. So if I give you $10, I get $10 of something back, a copy of the CD, a copy of the book. For higher amounts, you offer you know more experimental things or ex- experiential things. So I'll name a character after you, or I'll come do a reading at your house, or we'll play a private show, or you get a walk-on role in the film. People are able to offer whatever it is that they want to do. And so uh, 44% of projects thus far have reached their goal successfully. Can you talk to me about some of those people who have pitched their project online? What are some of your favorite ones? There's a project that we had early on by a woman named Emily Richmond, and uh, she's an artist from L.A., and as part of this project, she is sailing around the world alone. It will take her two years to circumnavigate the globe alone, and which is a crazy thing to do. And so one of her rewards, the things that she offered, was for $15, at some point on her trip, she would take a Polaroid picture, and next time she got into port, she would mail it to you from wherever, wherever she was. And um, about four months ago, three months ago, I got an envelope in the mail uh, with strange stamps on it. And I opened it up, and there was a map. And written on one side of the map was my name. And I unfolded it, and tucked inside was a Polaroid picture. And the background was the ocean, you know, faded Polaroid, and the foreground a jungle and a beach. And on the map, she had circled the island where she was sitting in the South Pacific. And on the other side, she written a letter describing what she saw as she, was, as she took the photo. Mm-hmm. And I got this for $15. And this is something that is romantic and that has enormous you know, emotional meaning to me. Uh, and I'm just a stranger on the Internet. you know. And so that sort of thing can happen. You contributed $15. How much was she looking to raise altogether? She's trying to raise $7,000. And she raised about 7500 something like that. Um, another one I really like, uh, I like these sort of quixotic projects. They're where my heart kind of lies. Um, there's another one called The Mysterious Letters, and it's by a, a guy and a, a girl who are both British. Their names are Michael Linka, And they had the very simple idea that they wanted to write everyone in the world a handwritten letter. And they were going to start with some small, specific towns. So they did a project on Kickstarter to do one in a neighborhood of Pittsburgh called Polish Hill. And so on one day, 623 residents of Polish Hill received letters from Michael Lenka. Again, all, you know, very idiosyncratic. And... Um, Predictably, people freaked out and got very scared and it got reported to the FBI and became a big story there. Um, and people started hanging up signs around Polish Hill that said, don't worry, it was an art project. Uh, there was an amazing story in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette of the reporter interviewing the shop owner, this older woman. Um, and she was said that she thought it was a nuisance that this letter got and that she thought it was fr- scary and it could be terrorism and these whole ideas. And in the story, it said, after the reporter writing, after I explained to her that it was an art project, the woman removed the letter from the waste basket and carefully smoothed it out. I just thought that was wonderful. Uh, When the public contributes money to support a project, it's not investing. And that's because it's illegal in the United States, although internationally, 
regulation is different. Was that a roadblock initially, or was it your intent initially just to have people contribute? The intent from the beginning was to not have any any equity or any points or anything change hands. And, and that was the intent even before we knew it would be against the law, even if we thought the other way. I mean, the thinking there was that if, if we're asking people to look at these things and try to guess whether or not it will be a hit, you're just recreating the same mouse cage that we already have, where people are just trying to get, you know, looking, looking to make a buck off of something. And if someone's being motivated by royalty check in three years for $13, what, what is that? Is that a better world? And so we always like this idea of it being about experiences and products that you get in, in exchange. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, yeah, so there's never any, any, any sort of um, equity or, or, or you know, financial return that swaps hands on Kickstarter. It's, it's strictly forbidden. What other forms of crowd support has there been in history? Is there a precedent for this? There is. I mean, what's funny is that this is not novel at all in a way. You know, the the original forms that art was primarily produced was through patronage, and it was patronage by the church, by royalty, by the Medici, by rich people, basically, mm-hmm. in general. And um, Beethoven would, you know, would, would perform a lot of his symphonies this way, where he would say, I will only perform this when the, when the hall has sold out, and that's the only way this work will be debuted. You get your name in the program. I mean, it's the exact same thing as now. Whitman used to publish some of his books in that same way. You'd, in the front of the books, he'd list all the people who helped pay for this first this first run of printing. And so there, there are hundreds of examples of art being made in this way. And then right around the middle of the 20th century, we started to switch switch to this idea of corporations subsidizing, commoditizing art, and that being the primary way that art was funded. While this crowd support has been in existence for centuries, to what extent do you think the appetite is is ripe for it now? I mean, you've been enabled by Twitter and Facebook existing, but how much have they facilitated uh, what you're trying to do? The lifeblood of, of our side is social media. At this point, Kickstarter is mentioned on Twitter about every about every eight seconds, I believe it is. So people are just talking about it all the time, talking about their projects, and it's how things are getting discovered. Um, when we were working on this in 2005, there wasn't a Twitter. I guess Facebook probably existed, but I'm not a Harvard grad, so I was not allowed to be a part of it. I mean, it was a MySpace world at that point, and you know, I'm not really sure. I think we had a MySpace widget idea for how people would spread the word, mm. but it was unclear. And so this whole world has grown around this that's allowed this to exist in a much easier way. Uh, Accidentally. Yeah, accidentally. What do you think the appetite is uh, for something like this in other countries? We have no way of knowing. I think that until you see it interact with it, a lot of what we do sounds very utopian and and uh, maybe a little naive. And I think we are a little naive, but, but we're all right with that. And, you know, we think about this the way that Twitter or Facebook have grown, where, you know, when your first friend started a Twitter account, you probably made fun of them. You know, you thought that's ridiculous. Like, why would you ever do such a thing? And then over time, you realize the purpose that it serves and it becomes a part of your life as well. And this is this gradual socialization of these of these new kinds of services services, these new means of expression. And we're on that same kind of of timeline, and we have that same level of patience for this. I feel sure that with time that this can be a thing that everyone will feel comfortable with. So artists have this reputation of feeling uncomfortable talking about the business side of their work, yet your site is all about artists connecting with potential supporters or sources of money. Can you talk to me a little bit about that dichotomy? I mean, you're you're saying out loud how much money you need to do something. And the way the site is structured, it's not just about money. It's more about the thing that you're doing. But yet 
we're all very uncomfortable talking about money in public. We'd rather talk about anything else than money. <laughs> and for artists in particular, you know, you're just running for money. You don't want to think about it. That's part of the point. And so there is that level of discomfort and there's that hurdle that we have to get over. And I'm incredibly uh, sympathetic to it. I mean, I've, I feel very similarly. And I also think that people aren't sure about putting themselves out there in the world. You know, J.D. Salinger would be a terrible Kickstarter creator. You know, it's, it's not for everybody. But I think that with time, people can see that this is about more than just the cash. It's about opportunity. It's about building an audience, all those other things. Along those lines, uh, you know, I asked you prior to the interview, well, how much money have you raised? And you don't want people to know that, which is compatible with this whole artist mentality of wanting to keep that separate. But that doesn't necessarily work anymore. I mean, you see artists, they have to be great marketers, and it's in their best interest. It's true. You know, for us, in talking about our own financial backing, our own, you know, things like that, we just, we don't view it as being terrifically interesting. So we just, we just didn't feel like that added anything to our story, that it, it didn't feel like us. It was, it was someone else's story of us. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Yancey Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter, a company that enables the public to fund creative projects. Do you know anybody else with the name Yancey, incidentally? I've, I've heard tell. And there was an NFL player named Yancey. There's an actress named Yancey. But I've never met anyone face-to-face. Um, it's, a, it's a southern last name, traditionally. I was named after a family friend. Um, I hated my name for a lot of my life. Uh, and only when, in, I guess it was in high school, I decided to embrace it. But, yeah, it's an unusual one. So going back to the early days of the company, what was more challenging for you than you thought? I mean, you've had kind of a, a charmed existence having the support of the of the media and this strong network of people helping you out. Well, those people were not there always. Um, you know, when we launched, we it was just us. We were a team of five. Um, we had no one of any weight behind us. We had no big investment, and when we go around to venture capital firms and talk to people about our idea, people did not like it. People did not respond to it. I think that we had that four-year gap uh, where the site couldn't launch, and that was not a happy period. And we would have launched that site on the site on in, you know 2006 if we could have, but we couldn't. And you know, you wake up in the morning and you think, is today the day that the three people in Palo Alto with this exact same idea, they launched theirs because they worked a little bit harder, you know, and you, you have these kinds of anxieties. And no one was getting paid. And it was, you know, it was, it was bootstrapping all the way. Um, you know, I think that there, there was a lot of emotional toll of especially me having a, a full-time job and my partners being both fully committed. Um, and that caused a lot of stress and a lot of tension, uh, as you can probably understand. Now the problems are interesting. Now the problems are growth. You founded the company with Perry Chen and Charles Adler, and they were working on the company full-time, and you weren't. So why did they keep you on board as a co-founder if, if you weren't carrying your weight? Uh, I That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. We we're friends, so that helps. It was, uh, it, it was, not, it was not a great period. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. You have a part of your site uh, devoted to product design, and that has been somewhat controversial. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Um, so we started Kickstarter as a platform for creative projects. We meant that pretty broadly. So that's film, music, tech, comics, you know, dance, all kinds of things like that. 
And then in September 2010, we had a project from two guys in New York named Dan and Tom, and it was a project called The Glyph. And it's a, it's a tripod mount for an iPhone 4, and it's a little simple piece of rubber. And they put together a video where they explained how they designed this thing, and they had a very clever sort of commercial for it. And it was a very, very well-done project. And they put it in the design category, and it was a design project. And they were trying to raise $10,000, and they raised about $140,000 very quickly. And the project is basically functioning as a pre-order mechanism. People were buying the glyph from them. And, um, and that, that was the first time we'd had a project like that. And it opened the floodgates to a lot of product design kind of things. And quite a few of those were terrible, and we turned most of those down. Um, but at one point, we had another big one come through. It was by a man named Scott Wilson, who's a designer who lives in Chicago, um, who designed the Xbox Connect, among a lot of other big things. And he had a project called the TikTok. And what he did is he designed a, a, a watch band that would turn an iPod Nano into a wristwatch. And uh, he was looking to raise $15,000 to do it. And after a month, the project ended with him raising $945,000. And so for his project, that was functioning as, again, as a pre-order mechanism, and some 14,000 people bought this thing. But more than that, they also got a story that they were part of. They were part of the creation of this phenomenon. I mean, it was, it was international news, this project. And all those people got bragging rights and got to be a part of it. But it's also more commercial than the kinds of things that we have traditionally supported on Kickstarter. I mean, our biggest category is documentary film. Documentaries have raised, you know, $15 million on Kickstarter. And something like this, you know, the creation of like a gadget um, seems a little bit divorced from that. You know, because of the the success of the TikTok and other projects like it, um, we've had a real influx of, of proposals of people looking to do these kinds of things. And we lit in almost everything at this point after, after a lot of internal debate. We sort of opened wider to this, but we're still not entirely sure how we feel about it. You know, we like this idea of Kickstarter being a place where you put an idea into the world and the crowd decides, right, whether or not it should happen or it shouldn't. But yet we're not a fully open platform. We don't allow everything. So this has really pushed some of our philosophy a little bit. And to be honest, we're not entirely sure where we stand. To, to some extent, these people, even if they have the commercial incentive, are still creators and they're still being creative. So Yeah, just because they happen to work in a different medium than one I feel more comfortable in, you know, that's just as much about my bias as it is anything. And we're, and we're very aware of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're also aware that, you know, when we started Kickstarter, it was ours. It was this idea we had to protect. But with each day, it's a little bit less ours. And it's more just a thing that exists on its own in the world that a lot of people contribute to. So... You know, you even have to question how much a voice do we have the right to have about mm-hmm. this thing. What do you do outside of of work that gives you pleasure right now? Uh, right now, it's primarily riding my bike. But, you know, outside of that, I just, I read. I read, you know, three or four books a week probably. What uh, What two books have you read this week? Well, let's see. Right now, right now I'm reading... Uh, uh, the Tom Shales uh, oral history of ESPN, which I find fascinating and I actually find to be a really good startup book because it's about the origins of this, what is now a huge, huge company just based on being founded by two men and basically how that how they lost control of the company and how it's become this other big thing. And then I'm reading uh, The Bridge, the David Remnick uh, biography of Obama. Uh, I recently read The Medium is the Massage by Malcolm McLaren, which is a classic 60s um, sort of post-Marxist theory book about about sort of the philosophy of media that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I read that three times in a day. It's a little 100-page book. 
and and another one that was I really love that I've read multiple times is You Are Not a Gadget by Jaron Lanier, which is a really good book about sort of the some philosophies of, of technology. Um, and he takes a very sort of pessimistic view in a lot of ways about, you know, what technology has done for us. And I enjoy reading those kinds of opinions. He advises Microsoft. I believe he yeah. does. He also invented virtual reality. And he does. He, he's, he's a very smart man with some crazy ideas. Yes. And he has great dreadlocks. <laughs> he does. Thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> Thank you for having me. My guest has been Yancy Strickler, co-founder of Kickstarter. Coming up, we'll meet Mark Ramadan, co-founder of Sir Kensington's, a condiment company. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. From Scratch.